My name is Mike Perrin and I'm a self-supporting minister retired at St Elizabeth's Aspel. Today the reflection is knowing the difference between God's word and ours and the text that we're looking at is 1 Corinthians 7 verses 1 to 24 from the NIV and these are Paul's thoughts concerning married life. Now for the matters you wrote about it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and her husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances, God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Even if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Well, that's a lot of words. But if you think your church has problems, consider the church in first century Corinth. Its members were split in their loyalty to various leaders. There were incestuous relationships. 
people were drunk while celebrating the Lord's Supper, and there are so many concerns for Paul to address. And he took on all these issues in his first letter to the Corinthians, or at least the first letter that survived, and he gave the church some of his most powerful and enduring advice. In 1 Corinthians, Paul sets out his thoughts on the principles regarding marriage and singleness, and the reflections suggested today is to consider this text from the point of knowing the difference between God's word and our word. So, Paul was very influential in establishing this Christian community in Corinth, but Corinth itself was swimming in a pagan world. There were temples to assorted gods, and these temples housed male and female prostitutes, and the cosmopolitan Corinthian church of Paul's day struggled with worldliness and sexual sin. His message was a response to these situations facing this uh, community. There were racial, ethnic, theological divisions, sexual misconduct, interaction with pagan practices, disputes about church practices. But Paul was a Hebrew scholar and a cultured Roman citizen, with a perspective and an understanding of his audience and a gift for communicating with the local culture. And he needed all these qualities to respond to the questions raised. Paul was spreading the word of Christ in a pagan Roman world that deified violence and exploitation, where keeping slaves and exploiting women and young boys was common practice. Paul objects to the dehumanising of sex and sexuality in the face of the acceptance of liberal values and promiscuity, and his letter gives much detailed advice. For example, there was a lot of confusion in the church about whether or not it was better to be married or single, and how married people should relate to one another. And Paul clarifies these principles for marriage, for the church at Corinth, and for the church today. In Paul's day, the Jews considered marriage a duty, and for a man to be unmarried was considered sinful. Paul's advice here is quite radical, quite egalitarian, and it challenged the oppressive Jewish patriarchy of the time. It is good, does he mean acceptable, for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul's thoughts on the relationship between husband and wife were quite radical, given the conventions of the day but consistent with Christ's attitude to valuing and endorsing the role of women in society. God's word via Christ and through Paul was in stark contrast to the attitude to the gender equality exhibited throughout our history. And even today, although many countries guarantee gender equality in their constitutions before the law, it doesn't always translate into reality. Here Paul points to mutual sexual responsibility. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to the husband. Paul's point here is that godly sexual relationship within the covenant of marriage is God's plan for meeting our sexual needs. Principle in this passage is important. God makes it clear that there is nothing wrong and everything right about sex in marriage. But Satan's great strategy when it comes to sex is to do everything that he can to encourage sex outside of marriage. Sex has always been a commodity. Sex sells. And the reality is that sex tourism 
is big business in today's world. It brings in huge revenues in many poor countries. It lifts many people out of poverty, provides mothers with money to raise their children. But it's still the elephant in the room on this planet. The church, the society and the law have agonised over sex-related issues for centuries. Many ethical debates for Christianity have focused on sex, divorce, contraception, sex before marriage, same-sex partnerships, and church leaders have had a century and a half to debate these things concerning the sex lives of other people. Paul says, To the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Paul understood how binding the marriage covenant was, and how it could not be broken in the sight of God for just any reason. Paul understood Jesus' word perfectly, and perhaps today more people should uh, not enter lightly into marriage, into this great covenant that we hold so dear. Paul wrote with God's authority to the Corinthians, and he speaks with authority to the church in all ages, echoing God's inspired and eternal word. Paul's trying to impart a conscience and guidance to his church in the way that he thinks best, despite the environment and the society that they were living in. The members were adopting some of the mannerisms and the behaviour seen in their society. Paul is attempting to bring ideas of dignity, respect, faithful behaviour, and this is, and always has been, a work in progress in God's world. Paul's writings make up about a third of the New Testament and develop all of those Christ-inspired ideas of a God who wants us to look out for each other and through caring politics and progressive faith help one another. So the question, what's the difference between God's words and our words? As humans, we've always been fascinated by the power of words transfixed by text, spellbound by story, and every narrative holds a power to engage the imagination. We can all recall those iconic speeches from history, I Had a Dream, from 1963, We Shall Never Surrender, from 1940, Blessed Are the Peacemakers, In the Beginning Was the Word, Our Words are Have Power, but God's word is the constant authority. God's word is powerful. God's words are active and they do things. All God says to the storm, be still, or to the light, be, they respond. God creates. God sustains. God decrees. This is the essence of God's word. God says, and it is. Whatever God has decreed, has, or will come about, just as the sun has never failed to rise, so God's words can never fail us. What he says will happen completely, infinitely, and ultimately. As I'm writing these words, a verse from a very old hymn, probably 150 years old, has come into my head, and I'm sure you'll know it. Lord, thy word abideth, and our footsteps guideth, who its truth believeth, light and joy receiveth. God bless. Amen.